show is ranking the Beatles. Uh oh, and we're counting every song. I don't care if you think that he's an idiot. Hey. I don't care about that. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love it. Well done. How about that? Some fireworks out of the gate. I'm sorry, Classics. everyone. That Bangers. was awful. That was that was brilliant. Maybe your finest work yet. I'm, I'm sorry that you all had to hear me sing very poorly. And I'm so proud of you right now. Um, <laughs> it was so good. Thank you. I usually Jonathan comes up with the songs, but today I came up with this one. He's like, "Well, you have to sing it." I'm like, "Fine, I want to sing it." He made me sing it. Yeah, tell him how the sausage is made. I'm sorry. This early in the show. But I'm explaining why I sang it. It wasn't because I thought that people wanted to hear me sing. It was because... They don't want to hear me sing. They want to hear Beatles songs. That's You're what... less offensive to oh, the ear holes than I you. am. <laughs> High praise. Thank you. Less offensive. <laughs> Much appreciated. Ooh, thank you. That was uh, not pretty. It was a jam. I loved it. Thank I'm glad you. you enjoyed it. I'm going to make it my ringtone. Oh. Yes. Great. Uh, friends, that will be a customizable, <laughs> downloadable ringtone that you can put on your phone coming soon. Um, welcome, everybody. Season three of Ranking the Beatles. We took a little break. Now we're back. We're calling this season three. Um, season one was the first, uh, the latter half of 2020. Uh, season two, first half of 2021. So now we are embarking on season three, episode 53. How's it going, everybody? Did y'all have a good break? I hope. Julia, did you have a good break? I did. We uh, we did a little beach trip. We did. We took a little, took a little mini vacay. Uh, with some good friends um, for a little R&R. Much so needed. It was nice to leave our house. Yeah. <laughs> that was exciting. Um, we haven't been anywhere since October of 2019. True. So that was really cool to like go somewhere other than our house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We just rested. We got a little bit of relaxation. I, I did not spend very much time on my phone, which was mm-hmm. a nice change of pace. Yeah. Um, I got to put that down quite a bit. And um, unless I wanted to, like, put some music on or something. Um, and we, like, just had some really good food. Just laid on the beach. Got a little bit of sun. Almost got uh, stung by some stingrays. That's true. They've. Stingray swam attack. right in front of us. It was a little bit scary, but a little exhilarating. And the water, um, uh, everybody part, everybody left the water real fast. Yes. Um, but we're fine. We survived. I, I don't think anyone was we injured. I think like everyone sort of scooted <clears throat> out of the way and they just like swam down the coast. Um, so that was exciting. Yeah, but it was and nice to get away for a bit. Very nice. Yeah. Nice to not um, be up till uh, 11.45 p.m. on a Monday night editing the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> for a change, that was cool. Uh, I'd have a few weeks off of that. But that said, glad to be back in the saddle. I've missed our little show. I've missed our friends. It's been uh, it's been quiet without y'all. But I'm glad we're here. Um, a lot going on in Beetleland. It seems like since we've been gone. Like I feel like there was a bunch of things we need to talk about. Sorry, you got me singing, and now I can't Man. stop. <laughs> Give her a mic, and a star is born. I tell you. Um. Uh, right after we <laughs> I threw off your... you did you threw my game Sorry. right off 
right after we released our last episode of season two uh, with Mike Viola, uh, the Beatles came out and announced that the Get Back documentary, which was going to be a two-hour in-cinema experience, has now expanded to six hours that you can watch from the comfort of your own home on Disney+. Plus With your loved one or by yourself. By yourself. <laughs> I feel like I'll probably do both. Um, we, for, for two, are, uh, are very excited about it. Um, should be a whole lot of fun. It's broken up, though, right? Yes, it's over two nights or three nights. Okay. A two-hour like, episode every night. Please don't make me sit on this over for six hours straight. <laughs> well, I did get you to sit through, like, what was it, like six or seven hours of the uh, Understanding McCartney YouTube documentary recently. Oh, yeah. Which was pretty great. Shout out to, uh, is it at Breathless345, I think, who made that? Whoever that mysterious person is. I think I follow them on uh, on Twitter. But Unshout out to, uh, what's that guy's name? Uh, the guy from Rolling Stone. Oh, Jan Wenner. Yeah, unshout out to that guy. Yeah, for a lot of reasons. So many reasons. Yeah, but... Yeah, so I'm getting you into the the depths of Beetle Land. That was oh, my takeaway my from goodness, that whole y'all. thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> over the weekend, we had uh, some friends over for dinner, and we got to discussing the Beatles, and uh, as you do. And one of the uh, members of the other couple that were here is not a Beatles fan, does not like the Beatles. And as we started to have the conversation to explain uh, why we like the Beatles and kind of counter some of their reasons, Julia stepped in <laughs> and took the whole conversation and delivered thoughtful, fact-based, uh, intellectual discussions. And it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. It was a sight to behold. You were super hot for me at the moment. Uh, yes. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> um, I've made a fan of you after all these years. Yeah. Not that you weren't a fan. Well, I think I've made a nerd of you after all these years. A little bit. Want well, yes. to defend the Beatles? A little too. bit. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, the the biggest critique was sort of the um, and there's some accuracy to it. Some personality some, some issues. Some parts of the fandom. Yeah. Make it hard to enjoy them because it's so over the top in its praise. Yeah. And this person was just like, oh, I just don't get it. They didn't feel that the Beatles matched up to that level of praise. Right. And I was like, well, I see what you're saying. I completely hear you and get it. And like eye to eye. I got you. <laughs> right. Um, because there are some insufferable people out there of all fandoms. Um, but I was like, let's talk about like the things that they have actually contributed to right. music and sort of talked about like the DI box and like the, the technical things that they invented. And, you know, the just the fact that they were like sort of pioneers of being the band, like being a band that is like a popular thing today. Yeah. There was no... There They're the no, archetype of a band. Yeah. Like there was, there was no predecessor for them. Like there was no one for them to follow in their footsteps they sort of like right did this on their own and like yeah they probably weren't perfect they definitely made a lot of mistakes but sure. like what did they have to learn from not a whole lot yeah for sure so um she was like okay okay i can see those points 
Um, so I don't know. Maybe she'll give them a shot. But it was impressive. Like you, you dropped some knowledge <laughs> on that little uh, cheese and crackers conversation. It was, it was super fun. It was wonderful. I and loved I it. And I think actually the the other part of that couple who actually does like the Beatles, mm-hmm. not quite like you, sure. um, is a musician, and mm-hmm. he didn't know about the DI box. That's true. Yeah. And I was like, ooh, I know a thing. That a musician doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Like, he knows what it is. He didn't know the Beatles invented it. Yeah. So. You did great, like, though. Thanks. Yeah. Um, what else is going on? Today, the day that we're taping, um, our previous guest, Mr. Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, they released their cover of You Never Give Me Your Money and The End. Uh, it was shared and retweeted by Paul McCartney. Um, I don't know that Ringo did it, because I haven't looked at Twitter in a while, uh, but Paul shared and retweeted it and had nothing but fine things to say about it, much to the surprise of a lot of people. But uh, check that out if you have not heard that a couple of weeks from when this <laughs> when we taped this. <laughs> it's very funny. Yeah, the drum solo made me killer. Double over in laughter. <laughs> Uh, what else is going on? We have a brand new website, friends. Yes. You can now get all your Ranking the Beatles things. I don't know what they are. At rankingthebeatles.com. All of our episodes are there. There will be some kind of store-esque thing coming in the near future where we'll have some wares to peddle should you be interested in uh, in doing that. That's not my department. That's not. That's fine. You you did the website. We're yeah. Good. Yeah. So... Uh, if you like the website, you can drop a line to our, our web mistress, Julia, and say, job well done. If you don't like it, well, sod off. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it's time to move on to this week's episode, shall we? Let's do it. Because I, for one, am super duper excited about this. Oh, my gosh. You really are. This Guys. is a person that you talk about all the time. You're like, guess Guess what he's doing now. I want guess, this person's job. <laughs> I want this person's job very badly. You really do. Um, our guest this week, friends, uh, is an author, a Grammy-nominated record producer, a radio host, a musician, and a songwriter. Uh, he's best known as the producer and brains behind a slew of brilliant reissues of historical albums from the 60s and 70s by artists like the Kinks, the Monkees, the Zombies, the Beach Boys, Bee Gees, Elton John, Big Star, the Left Bank, Nilsson, the Turtles, if there's like a major reissue by like a historical band, the odds are he's got his paws in it somehow. Uh, many of those box sets are in our house because we buy them all because I'm a big nerd like that. Um, in addition to that, since 2011, he's been the producer behind all the concert tours of the Monkees as well as managing the band. And he also handled A&R duties and additional production for their 2015 album, Good Times. If that's not enough... He hosts the weekly radio show, Come to the Sunshine, which is broadcast on WFMU, Rock and Soul Radio, and also available online at cometothesunshine.com, I believe. Uh, and it's probably the best show you could ever listen to if you want to discover brilliant music from the 60s and 70s that you may have never heard before. Uh, in 2005, he wrote the fantastic book, The Monkees, the day-by-day story of the 60s TV pop sensation, uh, which Mojo Magazine called the only Monkees book you need. And that is a spot-on uh, quote, uh, because it's been on our bookshelf for many years, much like the Beatles anthology. It's the kind of thing that if we're just killing time, I can always just pull that book down, open it up and find out something really, really interesting. Uh, now, after 16 years, he has completely rewritten the book based on an additional 15 years of research, uh, discovery and ongoing interviews with the monkeys themselves and others involved in the project. 
It's now over twice the size of the original book, coming in at 740 pages. Goodness. This is like a Yellow Pages phone book. (laughs) Uh, It is the largest and most extensive study of the monkeys ever published, and it's now available for pre-order. It's limited edition, meaning that when orders stop for the book, like when pre-orders are done and he ships them all out, that's it. He's not printing more books. This is like a bespoke two-order book. Um, it's pretty amazing. The uh, videos, the unboxing videos that he's posted on his website, Beatland Books, it's it's impressive. This is going to be great. Uh, this fall, you'll find him on the road with Michael Nesmith and Mickey Dolans for the Monkey's Farewell Tour, handling production and management for that. Tickets are on sale for all those shows, although many of them are already sold out. We're going to see him. We highly recommend you do it while you can, friends. Yes, it's a very good show. And, um, yeah, it's a farewell tour. This so is it. This, this is, is it, your man. last shot. If you ever wanted to, get your butts in the seat. Do it. And then get your butt out of the seat and dance because it's a really good show. That's right. <laughs> so, super excited about this. I've got to figure out how I can get this guy's job when he's done. Um, friends, please welcome to the show, Andrew Sandoval. Andrew, welcome to the podcast, my friend. How are you? I'm doing very well. Very nice to have uh, myself be here with you. <laughs> well, we can do that again. Uh, very nice to be with you. Thanks very much for having me on. Thank you. It's it's nice to be with you, as uh, as the monkeys once sang. Yes, indeed. First first one I got in there. Good <laughs> like, job. Um, there will be many more to come. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, as uh, I've I've spoken on several of our episodes with other musicians about um, my diehard love of the monkeys, which has led me to follow your career. And also my love of of other bands that you've been involved in their work in. So super excited to have you here. Um, and I know you're always a very, very busy guy. So I'm curious to know, you know, with the last year and a half of the world kind of shutting down, I know you had a ton of plans and probably a lot of things that were in the works. How did everything change for you over the last 18 months? Well, um, the primary business I've been in uh has been touring over the last 10 years and not a lot of people are aware of that because they've seen my name on reissues and a few books and things like that. Uh, So they don't know that I'm behind the scenes working on tours, particularly for the monkeys. And also I've done some others with, uh, I did a British invasion package tour, a few of those and some dates with Mickey Dolans and Mark Lindsay and uh, a myriad of things because when the music business went into sort of a, a, a a fall, um, I got into the live business and it's been really fruitful for me and it's a great second thing to learn about but that completely disappeared with covid and so i had to go back and think about what i was going to do and how i was going to survive and so i decided to revisit a project that i was uh looking at anyway at the time when everything went into lockdown and that was a book i wrote in 2005 called the monkey's day-by-day story and i had the rights back to it and so i was dabbling in revising it just as COVID hit. And then I decided to make it my primary focus and block out any other things that were coming down my way. A lot of people were bored and calling me like, Hey, what if we tried doing an online this, or (laughs) what you want to come over and do this? And I was like, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying inside and I'm going to do my book because I worked on it for about 15 years, the original one. And then I've been building up another 15 years or so of research. And just before lockdown, I made this major discovery of all of these court documents from 1967 regarding the monkeys uh, and 
a, a lawsuit between Don Kirshner who created the music on their first two albums and uh, the corporate entity who created their show, Screen Gems Columbia Pictures. So I boiled that down into uh, my new book and decided instead of revising my book, I'd completely rewrite it. And now it's this huge 740 page book, which I don't know it's if the so listeners. Handsome. It's huge. It's so, so big. It's so handsome though. Yeah. It looks like such a beautiful package. You can hide behind it too. And use it. <laughs> um, so, so that's what I decided to do, but it was miraculous because in February, if you remember everything shut down in March, I flew from Los Angeles, which is my home to New York city. And I looked at 2000 pages of court documents because I decided this was my one shot to see these things. And as it turned out, I was very, very on the money. <laughs> so I decided to put everything I had into this book. And now the book is, uh, available for pre-order and it's shipping out to people in August. And in fact, there's only about just a handful of copies left for sale because it's a limited edition book. It's uh, it's not the normal book. It's 740 pages. It's very heavy. It's very expensive to ship. And also it's not something I want to store and it's not going to ever be available digitally. So this is a real uh, library piece, coffee table piece. You're going to need an extra coffee table just to put it on. <laughs> uh, but it's very worthwhile. It's the idea is to do something that no book publisher would do, or even any record company. I've been talked out of all kinds of great ideas over the last 30 years. Uh, things that they said, you know, only a small amount of people are going to want this. And so I want to do projects for this small amount of people that mm. really, really love this stuff. It does sort of make it less palatable for the more casual fans. I respect them. We need them. We need to keep growing uh, the music fans. But I, while there's time left, I want to make lots and lots of neat things for the hardcore fans. Yeah. It's... Which I'm one of. I'm, 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 I'm the guy who would buy it. You know, right. I would sell other stuff to buy it. So he's uh, also the guy that would buy it. Yeah. He's already pre-ordered it. So pre-ordered he's on like your list. Day one. Be, I was like, yes. Yep. He like came hey. We met, we met in the kitchen for lunch cause we both work at home in our separate offices. And he's like, look with the phone, like, look, <laughs> I'm ordering. I'm like, okay, I'm, I wouldn't expect anything. Otherwise do it. <laughs> I think that went for, for, for a lot of people, including myself. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't take it lightly that it's, you know, that I was able to have this time to do this project. It is, it wasn't quite like the Twilight Zone guy who breaks his glasses when he finally gets the time to read all the books. <laughs> I hurt myself very, very badly while I was making the thing, and I was desperate to like not get ill and not have anything stop me from finishing the book. And I made it. I made it across the finish line, and I'm so proud of it. So seeing other people's interest is really, really gratifying, and I really do appreciate it. One of the things that I'm most excited about with this and it's kind it's kind of been um a a a, i guess a touchstone of everything that i've seen your name on for the most part um you know i i kind of backed into my kind of harder monkeys fandom in my like early 20s i'd been like beatles obsessive from a very young age and always liked the monkeys catalog but about 25 i really dove in and was just Mm -hmm. like engulfed I, I, i fell in love it was like and it was like rediscovering like when I, it reminded me of when I first fell in love with the Beatles. Like there was so much there musically, uh, story-wise, visually, like there was just so much to explore. Um, and there had always been so much Beatles material. And at the time there wasn't a ton of monkeys material. Um, I didn't right. know about your original book 
Um, I ended up finding a used copy somewhere uh, 10 years ago, maybe. Um, but then around the time when I started getting into it, it was when um, the Rhino Handmade box set started first coming out, I think. Um, right. and, all, and it was great because the products that I feel like you keep putting out are always the things that as a fan I want to see. So it feels like it's almost something that's been sourced from a fan's perspective of like, what would really make you happy versus just like, here's what we've deemed good enough for this project. Like one of my favorite things in the, um, the birds, the bees and the monkeys box from a few years ago. Um, it had the little, uh, lapel, the little button that said, uh, uh, tell, tell someone you love about the birds, the bees and the monkeys. Um, and when I was in a touring band at the time, I had that on my guitar strap and our guitar tech put all of our guitar straps in a washing machine one time. And like the back of the button got rusted and like wrecked. I, I still kept it, but put a magnet on the back. So now it's a fridge, a fridge magnet in our kitchen. Um, but like those little bits of like ephemera are like the things that I love. Um, so it, one of the, and I always enjoy when I see your name on a project, cause I know it's going to have kind of that attention to detail. So I just want to personally say thank you for that. <laughs> oh, well, I, I so appreciate that. I, uh, it's funny because I'll sit in meetings and I, and I kind of know the people I'm dealing with mm-hmm. who are the ones who fund these projects, unless it's something like my book, which I funded myself. And you sit across the table from them and like, well, why don't we just like put a poster in there or something, you know, something you, you fans like that. And I was like, no one's, you know, one holds up, no one's going to put it on their wall. You know, we want to do specific things. And then the, the the individual sleeves the mono one has to be shifted up so it looks like the mono record like it would have in the, at the time you know all these little details i'd love to do and they're like too much information we don't want to know <laughs> okay if you're going to do that as long as it's not going to cost extra money just don't tell us about it we we tuned you out when you said mono we tuned you out when you said this or that it's just like how many of these are we going to sell what are we going to get back off of this and and so and, and with artists i have to deal with a totally different thing why would you want to put out something that I don't want to release to the public? Why would you do that to me? Don't, you know, can't you see I'm a human being? I made these decisions. I think they're really good decisions. I made them at the time. And then I'll have to say, listen, retrospectively, a lot of people have heard these things. They've filtered out and you should make a claim to them because your ownership of them is important and they're greatly accepted. And I think you'll feel better about the public acceptance of them uh not to second guess your your thing and so it's a long thing and sometimes we say well maybe someday and 10 15 years will roll by and then they'll say yeah now is the time we want to do it and so i'm the guy who sort of sticks with it for that length of time but i a lot of other people would say this is not worth the trouble right we're just on you know but to me it's all history and all stuff that's worth getting out there and we got to find a way to do it well it's kind of like you're like the ultimate uh you know, like everyone's got that dream of like going to see a band and like the drummer broke his arm, guys. Can anybody fill in and do this with us? Like, it's like from the fans perspective of like, I love your band. How can I like document all the stuff that you've done? That's important. And it just, you know, at some point they say yes. And no one ever thinks that they would do that. But like, you've been, you know, fans of these bands and you've worked with them long enough and like gained their trust and really kind of gotten to that point where like, you're the guy for that for so many different bands. Like, it's such a, a cool uh, list to go down, like the people that you've worked with and see like how many of those albums are in our cat, our collection, you know? Um, right. It's really like, how do I get this guy's job? How did he do this? <laughs> I know a lot of people say that to me, you have my dream job. And then they don't realize that 
you know, I spend uh, my nights, you know, grinding my teeth and, and, and wringing my hands because it's like I'm under so much stress and, stress and pressure to try and make my dreams. And then I know the dreams of a lot of other people happen, even though these dreams are, you know, of just hearing certain kinds of music or seeing unpublished photos or, or you know, or even the audio quality of things being a big, big deal to me. But mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a strange thing, but it's been very organic. Uh, it just... It happened and it really, you know, if you want to segue to talking about the Beatles, I can tell you that it really kind of sprouted out of my deep, deep love of the Beatles. Yeah. How did, uh, how did you end up here at this, at this point that you're at? How do you end up with Rhino and the Monkees and all these other bands that you've worked with over the years? Well, what happened was um, I grew up in a house with a lot of music around, um, not particularly people playing like instruments, but people playing records. Mm -hmm. And my parents, big music fans and wouldn't call them record collectors, but they had a, a sizable collection of records. Uh, you know, ones they bought, ones they gotten for free, ones they mailed away for, you know, all kinds of different things. And one day I was watching uh, television and it was, uh, they had a televised show of bowling. It wasn't, my dad watched a lot of sports on television. And at the end, on the end credits, they wouldn't do this now because they couldn't probably get the rights or they'd have to clear it. But they were playing Good Day Sunshine by the Beatles. And I, and it just sparked like, I probably had heard the Beatles before, but I never wanted to know who who was singing a song, you know. I mean, I'd, I'd asked before other other groups, but I was four, and my dad said, "Oh, this is the Beatles, and it's Good Day Sunshine. You really like it?" I said, "Oh, I love it." And then my parents said, "Oh, well, you're going to love this." And then they had this Danish modern cabinet. They opened up, and they pulled out all their favorite Beatles records, like everyone does. And oh, you got to hear this one. You're going to want to hear this one. And so slowly. In the next few years, I took all those records and gravitated them to my room where I had a small <laughs> little table. And then I started looking on the backs of the, you know, all the U.S. albums and you'd see little pictures of the other records. And I said, oh, I don't have, uh, you know, this, I don't have the early Beatles and I don't have something new and I don't have, you know, all these other ones. I've got to get all these other ones. And then I started looking at books. Oh, the British ones have the songs in a different order. I've got to hear that mm -hmm. you know so i started collecting all the beatles records and my parents uh actually took me to england when i was six and uh sacrificed me in <laughs> in piccadilly <laughs> so basically they took me there because i was so fascinated by it and uh they'd always wanted to go they'd been there uh, they'd been to england i think or europe on their honeymoon but they'd always wanted to go to liverpool and so we went we went to liverpool in 1978 before there was a tourist industry there and it was really fascinating because uh, this is eight years after the Beatles broke up, and there was not a lot of uh, reverence for the Beatles at all. New music was happening in England, a lot of great new music, you know, punk and new wave. And uh, we were going to stores and they said, you know, our son really is looking for old Beatles records. And uh, and the people were like, what? So we went to the store in Liverpool called Probe, which was a major store for punk records. And they said, oh, well, you should meet this guy. And there was a guy like leaned over in in the in the doorway. And it was really strange. I thought, you know, in the, in the 70s, there were always these big stand ups you'd see in the record stores like Blondie or Eddie Money or these people. <laughs> and I thought it was like another stand up like cardboard cutout, but there was a guy literally <laughs> using the corner of the door to like hold himself up. And this guy was Bob Wooler, who was the DJ at the Cavern Club in the 60s. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, was a major part of history. And so he told my parents, buy me a drink and I'll tell you about the Beatles. <laughs> so 
we went across the street in Liverpool to a place called Grapes, which is on Matthew Street. But I was not old enough to be inside, but they had like sort of like a patio garden, beer garden sort of thing. So I could stay on the outside of the railing. And he said, well, you should meet my friend, Alan Williams. He used to manage the Beatles. Ah. And so we went to a phone box and we uh, called Alan Williams. He said, oh, come over and you can buy my book. So we went over and he served us some like jam buddies and and uh he had a star club record like a silver disc for the star club record on his wall and he sold us a book and i have it just over here it still has a the date and everything because this sounds like an apocryphal story this is like a movie yeah it's totally true <laughs> year later he came to los angeles and called us up literally from lax from the airport saying i've just come over from freddie laker like on the laker laker airlines and uh, I'm in Los Angeles, and would you drive me around? I've got a bunch of Beatles memorabilia I want to sell off. <laughs> so my parents went and picked him up and with me, and then they took him to Hollywood Book and Poster, this big place on Hollywood Boulevard that had a big Beatles painting on the outside and stuff. And then, that was the last time we ever saw uh, Alan Williams. But, um, you know, I just was fascinated by the Beatles. And, and as you can tell, my parents were very indulgent in anything to do with music. They took me to see... Paul McCartney and Wings at the Forum, uh, but we couldn't. We, we they couldn't afford uh, three tickets, and I was very small, so they just told me to pretend like I was asleep, and they carried me in their arms, and they were once <laughs> at one turnstile, and the, they they tried another, and they finally they let us in. So you know, I can say I saw Paul McCartney and Wings, nice. uh, but they didn't. They wouldn't tell me because they didn't want to disappoint me because they didn't have tickets. But I remember them waking me up when we drove in the parking lot and seeing all these people. The, the attitude and culture of the Beatles in Los Angeles, especially across the United States in 1976, 77, 78, was, was reverence. It was, oh, my God, the Beatles. Remember the Beatles? And I remember these people, like, just, like, holding up posters and stuff. And then, you know, Beatle fests and all that sort of stuff was starting to really happen. And so my love of the Beatles uh, was the primary thing. And then from there I discovered there's all these other bands Uh you know, and there's all these other bands to love. None would ever hold the place of the Beatles in my life, but mm-hmm. I decided to dig deep and find out everything else. And so I'm a major, major Beatles fan. And uh, and I sort of always feel like all things come back to them. And in my book, I've got a lot about the Beatles in there because the Beatles and the Monkeys had a really unique relationship. And it's yeah. really strange. Like, why did the Beatles like the Monkeys so much? I don't, you know, Beatles had no reason to bring these guys into their world, to let them into their homes. And they did. Yeah. So, And I'm sure you've probably talked about this with, with the members of the monkeys. What are their thoughts on on why, you know, like you said, they're accepted when other bands of that, of that time were not accepted by the Beatles, like some quite famously. I don't, I don't think that they know. I mean, we've talked a lot about it. I mean, they're Beatles fans for sure. sure. All four of them were major Beatles fans. And I did work with all four of the monkeys over the years. And now we've only got Michael and Mickey left with us. But, um, but yeah, it, it is a strange, just this very strange phenomenon. I think the Beatles saw the monkeys for what they were and enjoyed them and appreciated them. They didn't need to be told otherwise. Uh, they didn't need to feel like these guys are cool enough to hang out with us. Mm-hmm. And with the monkeys, the monkeys were smart enough to understand that this was a great honor and a privilege and they didn't blow it. You know, uh, Michael always tells me, you know, when I went to John Lennon's house, I wanted his autograph, but I never asked for it. I would never do that. I realized that 
this was my one opportunity to bond with this guy. And, you know, you think about the photo of uh, Mickey Dolan's and Paul McCartney, you always see it's in my book as well. And that's inside Paul McCartney's house. And then you look at how many other photos were taken in the Cavendish Avenue house in the 1960s, five, six. And one of the few is with Mickey Dolan's mm -hmm. and they're sitting on the carpet, you know, passing a cigarette around. So it's, it's really strange. Davy Jones at the recording session for revolution number one, because they invited him. They liked him. Peter Tork playing on Wonderwall, you know, as a banjo or George Harrison saying, Hey, I, I want you to be on my first record outside of the Beatles. What other group has that distinction? I mean, they never had a rivalry with the monkeys like they did with the Rolling Stones or even, you know, the who or wh whoever else, or the appreciation they had for the beach boys, you know, is a totally different relationship, but it was, I wouldn't say they thought of them as peers, but they never saw them as a threat. And they, they seem to really genuinely appreciate them. So yeah. nice. And you never saw the monkeys exploiting the Beatles or like, Oh, let's take pictures or whatever. Mm. They, they were cool. They realized this is great and we're not going to blow it. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so how yeah. did, how did you end up, you know, how do you end up working with the monkeys? How does, how does, how does one back into that role? Well, uh, so obviously I was really interested in music from a young age and I wanted to communicate with people about music and it was incredibly difficult in the pre-internet age. Uh, I would go to record stores and talk with the older people at the record stores, meaning people in their late teens, twenties, whatever. And I'd, I'd have questions for them, like how many albums are there by the Bonzo Dog Band or how, you know, how, where can I get this Kinks record or whatever else I was into? And you know, I could try their patience for only so long, but I wanted to talk to people and I also want to share my interest in music. So I started fanzine when I was 14. And from there, I got to meet some people. Now, it was very difficult with a very high voice uh, <laughs> before change to call up. I try to call up publicists and, and get interviews with people and they'd say, oh, we're sorry, miss, but they, <laughs> they don't just talk to anybody. <laughs> So, but eventually I did uh, succeed. I talked to a publicist at Rhino, who, you know, no relationship at all. And they, and I said, I want to interview Davy Jones. And eventually um, I got an interview with Davy Jones uh, in 1988. And that was the first monkey that I interviewed. And that had nothing to do with me working uh, with them. What, what happened was. How old were you at that time in 88? 16. 16? Okay. 16. When I was about 15, I met a guy named Gary Stewart, uh, who was the AR uh, director for, or head of AR for Rhino, the label. And he also worked at the Rhino store in his off hours. He enjoyed working at the store so much. So I, went, I would talk to him about all kinds of things. And then um, through him and another friend of mine, I met Bill Inglot, who was doing the Monkeys reissues at the time. And I decided, oh, I'd like to write an article about what Bill Inglot does. I'm really interested in how he gets tapes and goes through outtakes, all the, the dream things of, you know, a fan, you know, getting to go into the vault and listening to the unheard music and making discoveries. So um, I, I called him up and uh, chased him down several times. He was unavailable for, for a lot of time because he's very busy around 1988, 89. And eventually uh, there was a day where I called him up on the off chance he would be available later in the week. But he said, oh, did I say you could come today? You can come today. <laughs> so I got on a, a public bus, a regular bus, because I couldn't. I was old enough to drive, didn't have a car. Took a bus like forty-five to forty-five minutes to an hour into Hollywood to a mastering studio, and he was working with Shel Tommy, who had produced The Kinks 
and the who and the easy beats and uh, man after man and all these other great records on a kinks uh uh compilation that rhino were doing and then bill said oh you know i'll give you a ride we'll go to the studio and you can watch what i do i'm going to be remixing or mixing a bunch of monkeys outtakes today so i sat behind him and watched what he did and uh he was asking me questions do you know when this is from what do you think of this and all this sort of stuff we had a good conversation and then uh he dropped me off later on that evening at a bus stop and i found my way home <laughs> and uh and i just kept up the relationship with him and he eventually got me a job to write liner notes for this collection and then uh i got into uh actually working with him on the track sequence and then a bunch of other details and i found out all the you know, I just organically found out all the different things you do making a record, especially a reissue record. And, and which was compilation so, was this? Or were these? This was these Missing Links Volume 2. Okay. So this stuff was done in 1989, and then it came out in January of 90. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I was having a birthday party at the beginning of the year, and Gary Stewart said, well, I, I didn't bring you anything. What's the, what's the best gift I could give you? And I go, I want a job at the record label. <laughs> Are you serious? I said, oh, yeah, I'm serious. He goes, would you, would you do any job there? I said, yeah, I would do any job. So about a week later, he called me. He goes, I've got you a job in customer service, and you can come and work at the label. Now, I had a credit on a record already coming out, so that was good. And eventually, I, got, I, I took that credit, and I went and hustled other jobs from other labels, because once you have your name on a record, back then, you know, you could, you could do things. Mm-hmm. So... That's how I got involved. And then over a course of about 20 years, I got to know all four of the monkeys and uh, become their A&R person and main point of contact at Rhino. And about 10 years ago or more, Mickey Dolan said, you're the only person I know in the world who could pick up the phone and talk to any one of the four of us. Hmm. So why don't you think about maybe taking on a new role and putting us back together for some live shows? So I spent a few years doing that, and uh, and that's sort of how I ended up doing the management part of the monkeys and producing their shows. Mm-hmm. But uh, that you know, in the in the interim, I went off and did all kinds of other things. I worked on the Kinks catalog, Van Morrison, Harry Nilsson, Love, The Left Bank, The Bee Gees, Elvis Costello, just a whole bunch of different things. And it's all one thing has sort of led to another. I wouldn't say that I necessarily like courted all of this stuff. But I've just been very fortunate uh, to be able to go to one thing. And, you know, I've tried really hard with all of them. So mm-hmm. I've done my best. Man, well, you've you've done fantastic at it. Um, and one of the things I'm thinking, you know, in regards to, like, the reissues that you do, uh, whether, you know, monkeys, kinks, Bee Gees, whoever, um, when, you view, when you look at, at what you're putting out for those packages and you look at, at Beatles packages for reissues, like, how do you look at those two in relation as somebody who's involved in the creation of these kind of things, but also as a fan, like, are you able to like, uh, to, are you able to enjoy packages like, like a Beatles reissue that you're not involved in? Or are you thinking, I know we're oh, yeah. missing X, Y, Z. Like I would have oh, done yeah. this well, differently. I mean, I think the same things, uh, yeah. I think the same things as you do or other fans do. Uh, but it was funny. I wrote a, 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 a note, quick note to Jeff Jones, uh, and when the white album one came out, because I said, you know, I got to say, there's nothing about this that I would, I would change. It's really, really good. Like finally I felt with the white album, that was the first reissue they did. I know this sounds very, very <laughs> big headed. It was the first one they did where I'd said like, 
oh, they actually did everything right. This mm-hmm. is such a beautiful package. The liner notes I actually learned something from. Uh, you know, there was music that hadn't been bootlegged. There, it was it was really great. With a lot of the other things they've done, I don't agree with them. I mean, I was fortunate enough to meet Jeff Jones and Jonathan Clive once for a, a professional meeting in which I pitched them on an idea uh, that was Beatles adjacent that they were very hot on. And then they took it to the, their board and it was turned down. So I didn't mm. get to work for Apple, which has been my big dream. You know, that's my dream job. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I do look at all the stuff they do and I look at their merchandising and I, I'm sort of, I watch everything because I do want to do all these kinds of things. I mean, if it's not with the Beatles, it's with other artists. So yeah. um, I look at everything and it, but it, you know, I hope, so hopefully that answers the question, but yeah. I do, I look at, I mean, I collect all the bootlegs like everybody else. And now there's no real bootlegs. I, I wait, you know, my friends send me, here's a Dropbox link. Listen to this. <laughs> they just found, you know, these BBC sessions or whatever else. And I get excited just the way everyone else does. You know, yeah. I, I'm, uh, I'm the Beatles never fail to excite me. Um, yeah. You know, I, I always find renewed things that I hadn't thought about in a long time with them. So it's, it's really, you know, yeah, really best. I, I have to think that in, in reciprocity, uh, Apple and the Beatles folks, I think, I think have looked at, at what you've done with other catalog work um, and maybe looked at that as like kind of a watermark for the reissues they've done. And I only say that because a few years ago, uh, we went to a screening of A Hard Day's Night at a theater here in town and Bruce Spizer, uh did a presentation afterwards and then did a Q&A. And this was, I want to say, 2011 2012 like the 09 reissues had come out rock band had come out and that was it and you were starting to drop the kind of handmade reissues you know three and four discs uh you know the 3d you know box covers all these things and during the q a my question was you know the monkeys are getting this amazing catalog treatment when do the beatles reissues start getting this similar treatment because we're coming up on 50th anniversaries uh you know in 1963 um, and the answer was, well, you know, they, they see what Andrew does with the monkeys things and then they're talking about what to do in the future, but you know, everything's just, you know, speculative from what I understand. Um, so I, I, I again, will throw, uh, praise your way for, <laughs> for whatever we're getting as, as Beatles fans. I think you're indirectly contributing to that in your, in your own way. Well, thank you. I, I wouldn't even imagine that that it was even possible to be honest, but. <laughs> But it's very nice to hear that. But I, I just still think, like, you know, they do what they do, and they probably have the toughest job in the world because pleasing the the, the voting members of their board to get something through after all these years because the Beatles really don't have to do anything. They've given us enough. They, yeah. you know, but they have this wealth of material. And I think with Anthology, you know, that was a particular moment for them because, uh, you know, financially it was just so so uh important especially for george harrison who was going through some struggles at the time that he probably wouldn't have done anthology otherwise I, as, as far as the research i've done mm-hmm. I, I don't know personally but you know i i think that since that time they've been much more open and i think they have done some really good work and i i'm an appreciator of it and it's funny i've sat on uh committees where it's you know you're looking at a nomination and i was i put up the the beatles of the bbc uh set the second one and they're like who cares about that i was like there's a lot of amazing stuff. <laughs> oh, it's the Beatles. They always get to win. Screw them. You know, I, I was like, 
you know that a lot of people have that attitude like the beatles are just like oxygen you know you breathe it in you breathe it out who cares no big deal you know there's no special talent for liking the beatles i still think you're missing a lot if you if you ignore the uh the finer details for sure wasn't the anthology also and i guess maybe unintentionally like a big sort of resurgence for them and sort of grew their fan base to a younger set Mm -hmm. like i mean that came out when we were 94 so the early teens, yeah. yeah, and I feel like that really like sort of put you over the edge. Into, oh yeah, you were already like in. Yeah, you, you were in, but that just like blew your mind and like made you dig deeper and sort of cemented your your for fandom sure, for sure. So I feel like that you know even if they just kind of did it for the money, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But like, I, I think they did for more. I mean, yeah. I knew that. I think they they had to. You know, I think that they. They, they answered the call that people were fun. You know, they were never going to reunite, but they, people said, you have to do this documentary. You have to do this. And finally it was time where they was like, yeah, okay, let's do it. Yeah. So there, there's sort of that begrudging thing. Whereas I think the more recent reissues, I thought, you know, Abbey road had its merits. I thought the white album was really good. Sergeant peppers were the start of them really trying. Um, and now we we're going to have the Peter Jackson thing at the end of the year. I think now they're sort of gotten on board with everybody else. You know, there's the the Bob Dylans and the Grateful Deads of the world who just, they've let everything out. And for them, more is more. It's not like we're going to just have the things that we approve of. Their attitude is more like the more people hear of us, the more they understand us in a greater sense, the 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 more uh, they'll they'll appreciate us. It's not going to detract from what they know about it. It's not going to take away the mystique of Bob Dylan that you have every take of every song. So I, I think the Beatles are finally heading in that direction yeah. uh, too. So it, it's an interesting thing. And I, I think that they're right. And, and now you look at our lifespans and you think like in our lifespan, will we get to hear the other takes of any time at all? Yeah. Will, we get, <laughs> will we get to hear, uh, you know, uh, raw tracks from Rubber Soul or Revolver, you know these other these other things, and and you you hope so, but you also it's like well, uh, there there are bean counters uh, behind the desk saying, well, how much will we make off of that, mm-hmm. you know, and how much trouble is it going to be? So yeah, for sure. Why so, do you so. think they are so um, sort of protective of their image and what is put out? Where some people like the Grateful Dead and Bob Dylan are just like whatever, put it all out there, I don't care. Like, I don't know. Do we know why the Beatles are so sort of protective of their their image and their product? Well, I mean, I can tell you from, I mean, one of the most difficult artists and and one of the most important relationships I've had with an artist in my lifetime was with Ray Davies of the Kinks. And uh, we were working a few years ago on a reissue of his album, The Village Green Preservation Society. And that's my favorite album of all time. And there were some tracks that had actually been out uh, to to people at one time and I just wanted to kind of put them all together and he eventually told me he goes you know I wrote this song about my daughter and hearing it it's really it's it's so personal it's really hard for me to let other people hear it. when I listen to these home demos it's it's really like almost painful like it brings back all these memories mm. and i don't i it's it's I, I understand what you want and i understand why people want to hear it but it's really hard and and that gave me a greater sense of where they're at you know because we're just like why can't we hear everything mm-hmm. you got you do is great it's like 
different sentiments. And um, another opportunity I had like that was, or incident like that was Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees. One of my favorite albums is called Odessa. And uh, I'd done this three CD reissue of it. And at the, uh, I, I had this opportunity to like go talk to him afterwards. And he's like, I said, you know, this record, I just, it's, it's one of my favorite albums of all time. And because people always say this to me, you know, when I look at this record, all it means to me is bad times, my family breaking up, this happening, that happening. And he was very candid with me. And I totally got, I mean, that's the reality of where he was in his life. Yeah. And he does have people, if you have people saying, Hey, we just got to hear it. It's just going to be so great for us. You're like, I don't want to think about that anymore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, don't don't go into my yearbooks. I didn't look good that year. You know, <laughs> don't don't ask me these questions. So so pe- the artists are coming from a totally different you know mm-hmm. point of view for sure. So that's so interesting. Like we think uh, like when we hear a song, we are hearing it as just a song, but this is a for the really good stuff at least it's something that they created from such an emotional place generally and and it's authentic and like their feelings and everything inside of them is put onto these tapes and then given to us and we don't think about generally you we know make everything our own connection with right it. we make our own connection we don't think about everything behind it and it's you know like very good it's like super painful for him and we're like oh it's so great i love it <laughs> it's, it's yeah exactly yeah, i mean I'm, you know not everything, you know, I'm, I'm sure that they're not feeling bad about one after 909, you know, <laughs> or, or ride Dick Pony. But, you know, there are, I'm sure, sentimental things that they have. And it is it is uh, it hits them in a different way. So For sure. uh, but I also feel like as artists, they don't want you to see their sketches. They you know, they don't want you going in their refrigerator and looking at the stuff that they didn't throw out from last week. You know, it's like, oh, well, I meant to clean that up. I was going to like, what are you doing in my refrigerator? Right. (laughs) And there might also be some associations and, you know, I don't know that this is very true for the Beatles, but some stuff that's like maybe not so successful, like Ram, like when Ram came out, it was trashed. Like the critics were like, this is garbage, throw it away. And now we're like, what were they talking about? This album is amazing. It's so good. It's one of my favorite records. And I, it's probably really hard for them to get into that headspace after, you know, they, they put this little baby out into the world. It's completely trash. And they just have probably have like, a little bit of like this. Smile. Like, yeah. Like a little bit of a bad association with it. So it's like even hard for them to maybe go back to it sometimes if that was, yeah. you know going on public acceptance is so important to an artist i mean you know you put something into the world and it's if it's not successful and you thought it was going to be and you were anticipating a reaction you know it's just like proposing to somebody or whatever and then getting a no yeah you know you what do you, how do you deal with that and then you you know as an artist you have to move on to the next thing and maybe the next thing is much more successful so you're like oh i'm never going back there right you know? <laughs> yeah for sure well, I think we should move on to our song of the week, if we're ready okay. for it. Let's do it. All right, gang. Coming in this week at number 164 is Not a Second Time. You know you made me cry. I see no use in wondering why. Oh, 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 you're giving me the same old 
right. So this is one of those rare times where there's not a tremendous amount known about the actual creation and writing of a Beatles song. Uh, we don't have a definite time frame from when it was written. It was recorded in early September of 1963, so one presumes, based on their previous recording and touring schedule, probably shortly before this uh, session, uh, the basic track was recorded in five takes uh, during the second half of a session, which saw the band record a variety of songs, including I Want to Be Your Man, Little Child, All I've Got to Do, and George's first self-composed track, Don't Bother Me. So once the basic track was captured, uh, overdubs were added, including two vocal tracks from John and two piano tracks from George Martin. Uh, now, there's been various claims over the years that neither Paul nor George Harrison are on this track, and that's due to the mix of the track featuring mostly acoustic guitar and piano, and this is also kind of aided by often incomplete studio notes from around this time. Uh, now, some say just Paul's missing because the piano focuses mostly on the bass part. Others say George isn't on it because you kind of can't hear him well if he is. Um, I've read through multiple sources in, research, in, in researching this episode, all of which give varying answers. And without a source of truth from the band themselves, we don't really have a definite answer. My ears tell me that they're both on the track, as the stereo mix especially, you can hear Paul's bass part, it's just really buried. And occasionally the presence of a different guitar tone kind of pops up. Um, it's definitely not one of the most well-mixed tracks in their catalog for sure, though. Uh, the song was released in November of 63 in the UK on With the Beatles as the second-to-last song on the record, and as the last track on the January 64 U.S. release, Meet the Beatles. Surprisingly, the band never performed this song live, uh, either in concert or even in a BBC session, and obviously to, the, to date has never been performed by any solo Beatle. So, why do I have Not a Second Time at 164? I think this is one where I'm kind of ranking the song, where my, my ranking might actually kind of belie my actual admiration for the song. I really love it, and it's kind of like an intangible love for this song. Um, but I also, I love all these songs. Uh, but this one, I think, should maybe get a little more respect than it does. Now, being stuck at the tail end of the album can always hurt this kind of thing. But here's the thing. So at, at the end of 63, uh, in the Times newspaper, music critic William Mann wrote an article in which he hails Lennon and McCartney as the best English composers of 1963. In addition to this, he fawns over their writing with major consideration uh, in respect to the band's use of various music theories, while also noting that they're essentially the summation of the best of what's come before them. Uh, he writes, I'm not concerned here with the social phenomenon of Beatlemania, which finds expression in handbags, balloons, and other articles bearing the likenesses of their loved ones, or in the hysterical screams of young girls wherever the Beatles quartet perform in public, but with the musical phenomenon. For several decades, in fact, since the decline of the music hall, England has taken her popular songs from the United States, either directly or by mimicry. But the songs of Lennon and McCartney are distinctly indigenous in character and uh, the most imaginative and inventive examples of a style that has been developing on the mercy side during the past few years. Which, all right, high praise number one. Uh, he goes on to discuss how their songs, and this is 1963, so we're still getting the most rudimentary of like pop songs goes on to discuss uh, that they're basically doing what no one else is doing. And the fact that they're doing it all themselves, when they do cover someone else's material, they make it all their own. Uh, he actually, he calls out till there was you, uh, which is pretty surprising. Um, but here's where he, he essentially becomes like the Miss O'Leary's cow of Beatles legitimacy discussion. He says their noisy items are the ones that arouse teenagers excitement. Gluttonous crooning is generally out of fashion these days, but even songs about misery sound fundamentally quite cheerful. The slow, sad song about this boy, 
which features prominently in Beatles programs, is expressively unusual for its lugubrious music, but harmonically is one of their most intriguing with its change of pandi uh, this is a tough one with its chains of pandiatonic clusters and the se- the sentiment is acceptable because voiced cleanly and crisply but harmonic interest is typical of their quicker songs too and one gets the impression that they think simultaneously of harmony and melody so firmly are the major tonic sevenths and ninths built into their tunes and the flat submedian key switches so natural is the aeolian cadence at the end of not a second time the progression which ends Mahler's Song of the Earth. Now, John, once this article uh, was published and reporters began to ask him about it, was click to, click to claim that this was absolute nonsense. I think at some point he calls William Mann a twit um, and claimed he was just basically trying to write Smokey Robinson songs. Uh, but despite what John says, uh, this is the first time a writer of real stature is going out on a limb and saying, these pop stars your kids are screaming about, there's way more going on than anyone's realizing. And I think this is what starts to give the Beatles legitimacy as musicians and artists, in addition to just pop stars. It kickstarts the idea that pop music can be serious art and kickstarts the notion that these guys, particularly John and Paul, are the modern day equivalent of classical composers whose music will outlive all of us. It's essentially the first time someone does exactly what I'm doing at this point in the podcast and saying... This Beatles thing is great, and here's my opinion on why. <laughs> so we have this guy to thank for a whole slew of stuff. Um, now, so with this being the second-to-last song on the album, but also being hailed as a high-water mark in music composition, I think it's pretty incredible. Uh, looking at it from a musical standpoint, on the same day that they record this song and uh, All I've Got to Do, uh, which are two songs that John says are him trying to write a Smokey Robinson song. Uh, but I think what's interesting is this is the point where He's not just writing songs like Smokey Robinson. He's writing songs that are arguably as good as Smokey Robinson songs. To me, this is the beginning of the era where John kind of dominates as the writer for a year or two, where he's writing really creative, catchy songs, singing his ass off and doing it all with just incredible confidence that just it manifests itself on the record. I think this takes him into A Hard Day's Night, which he owns like 80% of that album. And I think this is him stepping into that role for the first time. Melodically, it's kind of like something you'd hear Paul do in that it moves all over the scale. Uh, I think it's fascinating that the song doesn't follow any conventional pop song norms. Uh, There's no verse, chorus, repeat. It's more like verse, slightly different verse, a bridge that's actually maybe the chorus and also a pre-chorus. Then it solos over that. It's a very inventive arrangement. Um, George Martin's piano keeps the low end moving. It's really neat. Uh, Ringo's drum breaks are super effective and it's not just a regular kind of rock drum fill. It's a thought out intentional thing, which is already, you know, for a young drummer and a young band to do these intentional drum fills is pretty, you know, pretty impressive at that point in the game. Um, I think where this song kind of loses points for me is the aforementioned lack of Paul in mix and in performance. Um, I think, you know, had Paul been more present as, you know, for vocal harmonies um, here and there, I think it would have helped to kind of elevate it a little bit. When you do hear his bass, which you kind of need headphones to hear it anyway, it's actually pretty nice. And I wish it was more prominent than the piano. uh, But I mean, I can't really argue about the mix because that's not something that could ever change at this point. Well, I mean, it could, but you never know. (laughs) Um, But to top it all off, uh, you know, the vocal is just fantastic. You know, John singing in 63 is like at the top of his game um, and he sells that kind of hurt lover R&B vocal thing so well. Even when he's not pushing his voice very hard, he can just pull that emotion from somewhere and put it on record and he nails it on this song. This has always been kind of like a sleeper for me 
where like towards the end of an album, kind of like things kind of peter out sometimes, but this is always like a strong recovery for me. So that's my thoughts on it. That was a whole lot. Andrew, (laughs) Andrew, I throw it to you. (laughs) Yeah. I I have a lot of thoughts on this, this track uh, because I think it is the precursor to a number of other things. As you say, hard day's night, which is actually my favorite, the UK one of all the Beatles albums because of the energy. And it is a real, it's the first album of all original compositions. And it, it just, it is a real even match of Paul and John really firing on all cylinders. Um, and also, I think it's the precursor to songs on Beatles for Sale, like uh, No Reply, uh, structurally, and um, you know a lot of other sort of sleepery classics. There's the actual rhythm. I don't feel is very much like a, a Smokey Robinson thing. I think it's actually more Spectorian. It's like dun 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 dun. You know yeah. that sort of that 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 kind of chunky rhythm in the beginning. And it is John not playing by any rules which is kind of very McCartney-like in, in a way. You know, what the reviewer talks about, their use of sevenths and ninths in their music, it just comes off so naturally. And I think it was natural to them. And I've tried to understand where they got all of this music, their Aeolian cadence, <laughs> cadences and the like. And um, I think it was their their assimilation of so many records that they appreciated. And how did they learn them? You know, they didn't own a lot of these records physically. They went into a listening booth and somehow memorized by listening to them and then went home to their instruments and learned how to play them. And then you hear them, you know, their their cover repertoire from the Star Club or BBC. You're like, how did they learn these songs? They're difficult enough when I've got the record here and I'm sitting with my guitar trying to figure out them myself. So, you know, then you have a not a second time. And, and the most interesting part of the song is perhaps the fade out where all of a sudden it goes out of time. And so it's like, you know, she said, she said, you know, it's it's got a little bit of tomorrow never knows. It's got all these things, you know, coming after it. And for me, the Beatles music, the early Beatles music is just as important as the later Beatles music. I, I think a lot of people are like, you know, it all begins on Rubber Soul or it's Revolver or mm-hmm. it's just the White Album and Abbey Road or whatever. And it's for me very much like the beach was there's no surfs up without surf and safari. And, you know, surfs up is more astounding because of surf in USA and fun, fun, fun and four nine and all these other somewhat banal songs. You realize like this incredible growth spurt and the Beatles went past everybody. They shot past everybody so quickly. It's the second album with the Beatles. And it's also, it's the closing track of meet the Beatles. So, I mean, to me, it always stirs up memories of, that's the end of the record. I've got to either go on to the next record or I've got to go back to the beginning. You know, I saw her standing there, you know, I was thinking of that album, you know, it won't be long. All of these amazing driving songs, little child, which I'm sure is way down on your list, mm-hmm. list. But to me, the, the sort of the primal Beatles is the most exciting because there's this joy, there's a real lack of cynicism. There's, but it's all the clever stuff that you hear later on. I don't think that they got more sophisticated. I just think that they evolved. I, I think that they their sophistication was always there. And where did it all come from? Where did all this talent come from? And how did they get it? I'll never know. I, I will be continually mystified by the Beatles and their process. It just, they are so gifted. And you hear it in Not A Second Time. You hear all the possibilities. And I've also heard there's the covers of, of the song. I've heard Elvis Costello do it, I think. Did the Pretenders also cover it? Pretenders did one, and um, and Robert Palmer did one, and he actually put yeah. a he, he wrote another verse for it himself. 
<laughs> which is like presumptuous. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I I think it it does strike a chord, and I, I think it is really interesting in its construction. Uh, you know, it just shows they 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 learned from Goffin and King and Smokey Robinson and all these other people, but then they were like, we can do whatever we want with that. Yeah, we, you know, we're we're creative and talented, and we just can, we can do so, and we have to do stuff. He probably had to write it right before the session, and didn't you know think about oh, it doesn't have a straight you know uh, a straight uh, a format with the middle eight with the you know all the regular things, and then George Martin's piano. The last thing I'll say on it is so evocative of every other production he did at the time, all the Jerry and the Pacemakers records, the Billy J. Kramer, you know, those, those breaks, those piano things, they're, they're just, they're, they're his little touch, his sort of Spectorian touch of, oh, it's a George Martin calling card there, but I love it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it, it's timely, but not timeless, but it also, you know, it just, it brings up that mood of that, the great Mersey boom, you know, all these artists coming in from Liverpool to record with them. And he's like, I'm going to play piano on your records. <laughs> it's just <laughs> what I do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What are you thinking on this one, Julia? Ooh, man. So I, I think this is where I have a hard time not having sort of the tactical musical background that you two have, because this one was a little like, meh for me interesting i i'm like sort of surprised to read all this sort of like the praise that's just heaped upon this yes and like the structure of the song because like i don't i'm not a musician i i'm a strict consumer that is it i am just like just a listener so i i don't see all of that like that doesn't jump out at me Mm -hmm. so i don't have that appreciation from that standpoint, I guess sure. I should say, if that makes sense, um, it's fine. It's not bad. I don't dislike it, but I, there's songs that are that we've already passed that I would put above this. Yeah, like Octopus's Garden. Try my car would be above this. Like this, this would okay, go okay. quite a ways. Not quite a ways, but a little bit, a little bit back for me. Yeah. Um, just just because it's like fine. Like it doesn't jump out at me. Like it's. There's no like clever lyrics to me. Like, I did like the end. Yeah, the end was nice, <laughs> and it's not bad. Like I said, it's not bad. I right. don't dislike it. It's just kind of like, meh. It's an early Beatles song. It just kind of falls in that meh category for me. I think this is one that I especially like. I feel like there's probably a some kind of term for this, where a song kind of creates, like the 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 melody and kind of overall feeling of a song just creates. Uh, a, a mental feeling for a listener. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, even yeah, if the I, lyrics were I, totally different, just something about the melody of this song and the sound of it just puts you, just gives you like the feeling that it should. And this is one of those it, for me. It's very dramatic. It's a very dramatic song. And, um, There's tension you know, to Beatles, it. The Beatles didn't do the show tune type of thing, but there is that kind of a melody where, ah, ah, ah you know, it's like he's really stretching out vocally the melody uh, that's not even that's not even picked up by any instrument. It is kind of very much a solo John effort, as you as you pointed out. And I think also the mix of major and minor. I always love that in the Beatles songs, you know, uh, misery. And then, you know, when you get it, when you get to things we said today, which is Paul McCartney on the next album, Hard Day's Night. And he's, it's all major to minor and, and that whole shift between the two things in the mood but you're this is like john lennon 
uh, intensity, mm-hmm. you know, you're hearing it, you know, to me, and then I start to think about Plastic Ono Band and all these other things where it's, you know, this is the raw John Lennon. He's actually, you know, conveying something, something's happened to him and he's, you know, it, I don't, whereas I feel like something like Drive My Car is like, they're having a good time. They're kind of throwing this away. Yeah. It's well, it's a great opener and it sounds great on stage and all that sort of stuff, uh, you know, in, with, with McCartney. But but I feel like there's something to this song. There's substance to it where there's no substance to Little Child. There's no, <laughs> you know, and, and, and some of the other things, you know, um, I think all I've got to do is a really good counter counterpart mm-hmm. to this song. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, I feel... I, you know, when you gave me the list of potential ones I could come on for, I was like, oh, no, I want to be there for this because <laughs> I'm super into this. I, you know, I don't know where it would break for me. Um, it might be in my top 100, but I, I don't know how long your list is, like 200 plus songs. Yeah. 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 I always think like the monkeys uh, who I don't I don't put in the same songwriting league as the Beatles, but in the same in like five years, they recorded the tracks for 400 songs whereas in eight years the beatles did 200 something yeah and the quality is way way different but that's always been the fascinating thing for me like uh people were so prolific mm-hmm. uh, how do they do where, where do they find time for their personal life and the beatles just at this period were just squeezing in you know they just had a real joy you get the sense that they really enjoyed writing until the point where you know it was like 65 and and paul had to go out to john's house like hey could, could we try and write a song right we do <laughs> deadlines you know yeah uh but anyway i i I remember reading a few years ago an an interview with peter torque where he said he would put the beetle the monkeys uh the monkeys catalog of what had been released in that same kind of ballpark of quality um you know maybe just a, a step below i think was what he was saying was that he would put the monkeys catalog just a little bit below but in the same ballpark of like bands from the 60s that have like catalogs of similar quality how do you feel about yeah. that well i think I, I mean i'm not sure if maybe it was a different quote but i remember him saying something about the monkey songbook that, yeah, that's what and i meant yeah it was a songbook because there were so many great contributors goffin king and yeah. harry nilson daca and and boys and hard uh contributing to this this overriding thing i mean if the beatles did it all themselves right uh the monkeys do have a really fascinating uh trajectory and and songbook and I do think it stands up uh, among the greats of the era. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rank it above the Beatles. Oh, but sure. <laughs> I, but they they qualify. I mean, and that's a really big deal because for the generation that grew up around them, they didn't qualify at all. Mm-hmm. And there's still a lot of baggage from that, and it's it's sad. But it's not my job in life to make people appreciate the monkeys. You know, it, my job in life is more to. If you already appreciate them, here's more about them. Here's right. more of them. So, yeah. Um, but where's the Beatles? Everybody seems to like them. You know, you, you meet people occasionally. I, I went to a bar once. They had a, a specialty drink that was called the Beatles or overrated. <laughs> and the bartender who created the drink was behind. He's like, yeah, I just think so. I'm like, well, what bands do you like? Well, you know, like the Doors. I'm like, oh, geez. Well, <laughs> I'm going to have this drink and leave. Right. Uh, anyway, Do you not um, like the Doors? I'm not a big Doors fan. Yes! <laughs> it's you and me, Andrew. We're the only ones in the world. I'm not a huge Doors fan. I wouldn't, I wouldn't There's actually, a couple songs. I, I would not create a, a specialty cocktail called Doors Are Overrated. True. I wouldn't even go to the trouble. I would, I would just quietly think to myself, yeah, I'm not that into the Doors. <laughs> But with the Beatles, 
it's I, I think it's more like it's reactionary when people say they're not that excited about the Beatles. Uh, there's so much to like, and there's so many facets of it. And um, I think with the monkeys, the story is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Their story is, is one of the weirdest in popular music. So for me, that's what keeps me coming back and, and trying to rewrite and write again, the, uh, you know, uh, the, the story for them, because I think there's, there's so many nuances to it. And the more I understand about it, the more remarkable I think the whole thing that it actually even happened is. Yeah. Well, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know you've always already given, given us a ton of time. Uh, can we do a few rapid fire questions before you go? Sure, of course. All right, cool. Here we go. Uh, your favorite Beatles song. And it can be all time. It can be today. However best fits you. Uh, uh, geez. Hey, Jude. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's your least favorite Oh, that's, that's mm-hmm. tough. Uh, yeah. I, I, I can't, I can't think of one. Uh, if something really came up. like, a, if, is there something that comes on that you're like, eh, skip. skip, you don't have to dislike it, like actively dislike it. Cause as Jonathan says, like, I really don't dislike any of these songs, but. Yeah. I, I know you want to do rapid fire. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to scan my, my mind and. Uh... They never are rapid. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you're going to listen pass. to them all. You're in for all of them. He's going to pass. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'm going to have to list all 223 songs. <laughs> uh, your favorite Beatles album? Hard Day's Night, the British Hard Day's Night. Love it. Love it. What is your favorite memory associated with a Beatles song? Uh, probably the one I told you about hearing Good Day Sunshine for the first time. And it's weird that I ended up, you know, starting a, a radio show and did this compilation called come to the sunshine and got kind of into that thing. I mean, I, I frankly, I'm not all that excited about the sun on certain days, but <laughs> I, it, it's so evocative. I mean, that's my favorite memory is that of, of first acknowledging or learning that these were the people behind the songs that, you know, that I liked. And then also the, the realizations, like if you put on a Beatles record, it could change your whole mood. It could make your whole day. And the fact that you the the records just listening to them have that power, that's what kind of led me on the trail of music all these years. I mean, I was like, this could be the answer to everything, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what is like your holy grail Beatles reissue? If you could, if you got a chance to work with them, what's like the one thing you would want to do? Oh gosh, mm-hmm. um, that I you know I I would love to see expanded versions of those early records, you know, I'd love to hear every take of any time at all. And, uh, you know, when I get home, I would love to hear the raw stuff, take after take, like we've heard of some of some of the other, uh, things from rubber soul or, you know, I know with their overdubbing later on, but with hard days night, you figure they were live in the studio and they probably there's take and take and take of them working out those songs. I, I'd love to hear that stuff. Um, I was so disappointed with the U S albums thing. Cause I grew up with the U S albums when uh, they did that and they just took the 2009 versions and sequenced them like the U.S. albums. It's mm-hmm. like, you missed the point. Yeah. The whole point is we want to sound like the crappy U.S. albums with all the weird mixes and everything. Yeah. That's that. That's what I would want. But that's sort of the thing. I mean, I don't think that I have an idea that is so revolutionary that the Beatles would not have uh, bypassed it at some point earlier. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, your favorite Monkey song. These are now tailored specific for you. <laughs> my favorite monkey song uh god so tough uh 
maybe something like you just may be the one or one of those. I mean, yeah. Nice. Um, is what song do you wish you could get Michael and Mickey to do on this tour that, you know, they will never do. Well, there's no never because occasionally I do get them to do things. Uh, cause I work a lot on the set list, mm-hmm. which is a really weird thing, but I get to do that with them. And, uh, I've had them do rehearsals of certain songs that haven't made it into the shows because for whatever reason, the arrangements don't sound that good. I mean, my most requested personal song that I would like them to do in this show, which they may do, but we haven't done any rehearsals is love is only sleeping. Oh, wow. Uh, tried that um, a few years ago at a rehearsal and um, it was sort of working, I thought, but, but time kind of ran out. So I'm thinking like maybe that might happen, but a lot of the ones I wanted to hear have happened now, yeah. you know, steam engine and some of these other ones. Uh, and then they, you know, they don't like them at first and they sort of, Oh, we really like this. So. Yeah. They're not going to do like shorty Blackwell. Is that on the table for the tour? No, because you know, you know, Peter for a long time was trying to convince Mickey to do mommy and daddy in the show, mm-hmm. which I thought was really cool, but they could do anything at this point. People, the, the thing about where we're at, 30 years on from when I started to now is that people have access to every song that the monkeys recorded more or less. And they have this greater understanding of them. There are people who come just to hear the hits and they will play all their hits, but you, you know, you had shows where we did all of your toys and they had tear the top right off my head and all these other obscurities, which to some people, they've been on so many compilations. They're just as relevant as words or antique Griselda or the, you know, the B level tracks uh, mm-hmm. of, of their, their career. Yeah. I'll never forget when we saw them. Was that 2011 at the Greek? Yeah. It was the first tour that Michael came back on at the Greek and, theater. Uh, they, 2012. I knew it was like somewhere around there. Uh, and you know, they're going to the show hit after hit. Of course, the, the, everyone around is having, we're having a great time. Everyone's having a great time. They break into circle sky he and I lose our minds. Everyone else in the place is just like, okay, we'll sit this one out. And we're just like, yeah, it's just like raging. And everyone's looking at us. A lot of older folks around us who were like, I don't remember this one. (laughs) It was so great. That's what I mean. On that tour, there were so many points in the tour. I remember in Chicago, people just going nuts when, when Michael started down, down with that riff. And, um, and it still happens too. I mean, there, there's an excitement and there's also the excitement of the monkeys have acknowledged that end of their career it's not like we'll only do our hits or we'll only do this the monkeys have been one of the most interesting artists for me to work with of all the people i've worked with because they've been so open and so creative i remember sitting in a in like a bar with davy jones and mickey dolans and peter twerk in 2011 before uh we did the the first tour with them and i said you know paul mccartney's doing a thing now which he actually didn't end up doing but he had announced he was going to do all of band on the run in his Mm -hmm. show and I said, and I said, yeah, that's, that's a really cool idea. And, um, and Davey's like, we could do that. What album will we do? And then he's like, we'll, we'll do all of head in the show. And they did. Davey suggested yeah. doing it. Oh yeah. That's see, I would not have pegged him as the one to suggest that. Well, that's the thing about the monkeys, whatever you think it, you don't you know. know. <laughs> you don't know. Yeah. So, and, and what's, you know, really strange, like the, the following year, 2012, when Davey passed away and, Michael came back. I watched Mickey, Peter, and Michael, just the three of them, try to play all the songs from Head with no other accompaniment. I mean, they hadn't ever played those songs except for Circle Sky on stage, and here they are, like, working their way through them, trying to play them 
I mean, it, it was obviously just rough, but it was like, this is bizarre. I mean, and, but these are the guys on that record, but they never, you know, they don't, don't all play on those songs and, but they kind of know them a little bit. It's, it, you know, that's the odd thing about the monkeys. And that's why I feel like you can never count them out from doing something that's going to surprise you. And uh, it'd be a surprise to me because we haven't done any rehearsals or anything. I would assume we're going to do a lot of the stuff that was on the most recent album, the uh, Mike and Mickey show live album, which I produced. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's going to be the backbone of the set, but there might be a few surprises. We'll see. Fantastic. My fingers are crossed. Fantastic. couple more. Oh, when does that tour start? It's starting soon, right? It starts in September in Spokane, Washington, and follows through, closes at the Greek Theater on November the 14th. There's about 40 shows, and you can look online and find out all the dates. Yeah. We will uh, We will be in uh, in Memphis yep. at Graceland for that show. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. I asked Michael Nesmith recently if he had ever met Elvis, and he said no. He wanted to because he was produced by Felton Jarvis on the first national band records who was producing Elvis, and... Uh, Eventually, Elvis begged off or, uh, and felt told, you know, Elvis is as nervous to meet one of the monkeys as you are to meet Elvis. So. <laughs> wow. That's funny. <laughs> well, and some of the guys from his band played on uh, on the third First yeah, National TCB Band, right? Band. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. In, on uh, Nevada Fighter, he's got some of the TCB players, probably through Felton. But, yeah, it should be really interesting to go back to Graceland. Uh, uh, maybe uh, I've been there before, but, yeah. uh, but go back with the monkeys will be really interesting. That'll be cool. I'm excited. That'll be cool. Yeah. And uh, we also love Memphis. So right, I'm like, yeah. oh, Mikey, Dude. Memphis, let's do that. That yeah. sounds good. The Fax <laughs> Museum is one of the best museums I've ever seen devoted to music. Oh my it's yeah. unreal. It's so cool. Last time we went, we, we ended up having to leave early, but I, we should go back and catch the rest of that. Yeah. It's funny. I well, No, we didn't leave early. We just ran out of time out because of time. there's so much. <laughs> we were there for hours, but our some friends were coming and they live lived at the time in Oxford and they were meeting us in Memphis and we were like oh we have hours we'll certainly be able to do the museum before they arrive and then they were like hi we're here and we're like oh my god <laughs> we did like it was like five, five hours. hours later <laughs> it's so good uh what's your favorite monkeys album Pisces Aquarius Capricorn and Jones solid That's solid choice yeah. uh your favorite monkeys memory oh boy well um Maybe, you know, probably my dad getting me their records when I was really young because the monkeys records weren't available. And he saw somebody try and trade them in at a store and they were worthless. Mm -hmm. And so he followed the guy and got the records. So that's probably my favorite memory because it started me on this weird path. I never expected, I thought I was going to go work with the Beatles. I mean, that's what I was groomed for <laughs> when I was young, but I ended up with the monkeys. So uh, it's been a really fascinating trip with them and, um, you know, that's that started it all really yeah. and final one what's your holy grail monkeys project my holy grail monkeys project um well aside from the book which <laughs> pretty getting to call all the shots myself um you know i've gotten to do most of the things there's the couple super deluxes that haven't been done i'm ready to do them when rhino says they'll they'll do them um uh, there's a couple things I'm still looking for. You know, I'm looking for an acetate or some recording of the first session they did with Snuff Garrett, which is MIA and Lost of Time. And then there's still the hope that someday there's some kind of professional recording of their 1969 uh, tour with Sam and the Good Timers will turn up. So th those are the kind of the holy grail. If those one of the two of those turned up, I would be just thrilled. And I've actually made some new discoveries in the last few weeks of things that were missing for all the 30 years that uh, I'd never heard and 
Wow. They just kind of turned up. So stuff turns up all the time. You just have to keep waiting. Yeah. Man. Well, I'm, this has been such a, a fantastic chat. I can't thank you enough for making time for us. Uh, where can our listeners uh, get a hold of your new book? And when they do they to, have to get a hold of it by is the other question. Well, uh, <laughs> they have, they have some time in the sense that there are still some copies available. There's quantities are limited on all three of the different versions of the same book, but you go to beatlandbooks.com like Beatles beatlandbooks.com and you can look at how to pre-order the books are going to be shipping out in August. They've all been printed now and they're getting bundled up and they're going on a big ship and they're going to come through the port of long beach, just like the monkeys did in head. So <laughs> just not going over a bridge, hopefully <laughs> they're, they're going to pass right by that same bridge. I swear that's where that's they're awesome. coming to. That's yeah. so funny. Fantastic. And uh, where can they keep up with all things that you're doing, including uh, any other future reissues uh, come to the sunshine, things like that. Well, I'm uh, you can follow me on Twitter at come to the sun you can look for my show on WFMU. I'm on Rock and Soul Radio there every Monday with Come to the Sunshine. also have uh, some other shows off and on with WFMU. And then you can look for me on Facebook or Instagram under my name, Andrew Sandoval, and follow my exploits, and there will be more. Beautiful. Andrew, I can't thank you enough for making some time for this. And just for all the work you do, uh, you make it fun to be a fan of the bands that I love. So thank you for, well, for all you do. I so appreciate you saying that. Thanks. Made my day. And I love being here and talking about the Beatles with you. I'd come back anytime. Well, we got 163 more. So <laughs> I, will, uh, all. I will. It's yours. <laughs> got it. <laughs> well, all right. Thanks so much, man. Have a great night. I appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. Okay, bye. All right. Bye-bye. Andrew Sandoval, everybody. Wow. I could have done that for another two hours. Oh, my gosh. You could. Man, I feel like, um, I feel like we got to get Sean Nelson and Andrew. And the three of us have just just powwow, just chat, just talk it out. I shouldn't even be there. You, you can go elsewhere. Because, yeah, you, you, I would be yeah. just ignored. Yeah. You would just be like enthralled by the two of them and the conversation the three of you would be having together. It would be the. Uh, it'd be pretty nerdy. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. But but uh, I'll sit in the corner with a drink and roll my eyes at you. <laughs> yes. No, it's very cute. Oh, I I you. love that you love these things so much. Well, it, you know, it's it's great because like. Like I was saying earlier, I feel like all the things that he does have that input of like, what would like if I, as a fan, what do I want to see? Mm-hmm. And it's so nice to for someone to be taking care of this, uh, these catalogs of these artists that deserve this yeah. treatment. Like, it's not like he's picking up some crummy records that, you know, are not great. He's giving care to these artists that you know, are wonderful and have created these masterpieces and he's putting so much love into them and you can tell. Yeah. That's the biggest thing is you can tell all the, all the, the reissues he does and all the packages that he does are made with love. The, uh, the Kings village green preservation society box set. When he said that that was his favorite album, like it makes sense. Cause that box set is immaculate. There's so much wonderful stuff in it and there's so much attention to detail. And he's done that with all the monkeys reissues uh, he did the Big Star box set, uh, the Keep an Eye on the Sky box set a few mm-hmm. years ago, which is funny. Um, Adam Hill, who was our guest, we've had it on this show twice. Um, when I first met him, we were working in Memphis, and he and I were nerding about something 
uh, beetles or monkeys or something related. And he goes, man, do you know who Andrew Sandoval is? And I was like, I do know who Andrew, I don't know him, but I know who he is. Well, we just did this uh, big star box set a few years ago, man, you guys would hit it off. Oh my so. gosh, that's so funny. I can't believe we didn't even mention Big Star today. Like, how did that happen? I posted note with a question I didn't even get to. Oh There's my so gosh. much more. Well, he'll be back. Gotta let the man go eat dinner at some that's point. That's right. He'll be back. It's fine. We'll Friends, I, I, I didn't even ask you, hon. What do you think? 164, not a second time. I think a little bit lower. It should be lower? I, I In my book, I, I completely... I, I understand where y'all are coming from. You have a different 180s, appreciation for the song than I do because of your knowledge that you can see these things in the song that I can't see. Sure. So just for my ears alone, I put it a bit lower. I would put some things ahead of it. Okay. Okay. But again, it's not bad. I don't dislike Like no. you say, I don't dislike it. I would still listen to it. I listened to it, I don't know, 17 times before we recorded today. Yeah. Um, so I don't. I don't dislike it. It's just like, it sounds a lot like uh, Devil in Her Heart without sort of that like flamenco-y guitar to me. Interesting. Like, to my ear. I don't know. I could be way off. You're giving me that look like, no, you're wrong. (laughs) I'm not giving you that look. (laughs) Friends, what do y'all think about Not a Second Time at 164? Are we too high? Are we too low? Or are we just right? I'm just going to say just right. Thank you. All right, am I right on the money with it? You tell us. Let us know what you think on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Let us know what you think. Uh, make sure you check our website where you can find a link uh, to Andrew's new book to order it before you can no longer order it. Because as I mentioned before, and as he said, copies are limited. Mm-hmm. They're already shipped. means no more are being made. So if you want one, you got to act now. Um Uh, so yeah, uh, be sure to follow us along on Facebook at Ranking the Beatles. Where can they find us on Twitter? Ranking Beatles. And how about Instagram? Ranking the Beatles. That's right. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, welcome. We hope you're loving it. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, and we hope you are, please tell a friend. Uh, if you've already told a friend, tell a second friend. And uh, if you, you don't can like it, also relieve us that's a five star review. Yes, that would be swell. On your uh, podcast provider of choice, if they allow, leave us a review, preferably with five stars and some kind, kind words. Um, so I think that's a good one. I think we're at a good spot. I would like to leave one more apology for my singing at the top of the oh, episode. Oh, man. <laughs> we're going to remix it, too. Oh, no. We're going to do like an auto-tune remix. Oh, my gosh. So good. Maybe that'll make it be not as terrible. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well... We hope you guys have enjoyed the show today. I've had a wonderful time. It's great to be back. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode. So until then, take care of yourselves. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Julia. This has been Ranking the Beatles. Adios. Bye, y'all.